Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Another week, Mark, another week. It is the week ending 31st of the 8th of 2018. Welcome to the Vet Gurus podcast. I'm Brendan and I'm here with Mark. Hopefully it's he is on the end of the internet listening to me and we have some, as usual, some very good stories to tell. Most of them are news stories, but I think, Mark, you've got a little talk about, um, a little story about what you've been up to this week. I'm going to throw you in the deep end as usual and ask you to tell me a nice little anecdote of something well, I've been dealing with yes. Well, I'm, I'm going to jump right out of the. Um, I'm just going to tell you the story of what we did today. Um, it's been a bit of a big day, and um, and uh, I had a bit of a surprise for Kate's birthday. We um, drove down to uh, Sydney, got to the Star Casino, the Lyric Theatre, and watched the Book of Mormon. Brendan, it was an outstanding uh, theatrical production, and um, and um, maybe in the next few weeks we can. Um, had a bit of a review, but I enjoyed it immensely. We, I must admit, we haven't done a review, have we, of a, of a film or a, or a stage show or a play or an opera or something like that. So, yes, get thinking, Mark, of your score out of 10, and um, I expect you'll give your typical narrow um, score range between 8 and 10 um, for for that particular production. But, yes, I haven't. It, it was showing at Melbourne for a fairly, fairly long time. Um, period of time I, I think it may have has it moved up to sitting now and i missed the boat i know our, our neighbors did go and see it and they raved about it um so yes um i've only heard good things about it mark well i wish i was doing something similar mark and enjoying myself there I, I although i must admit i was multitasking this weekend mark i was i was at the clinic working hard on saturday morning doing the consultations and and multitasking in between as you um, heard previously before we got on air i was running between uh, vaccinating dogs and looking at sick snakes and discharging a snake i biopsied um, its head region and doing some grouting um, of the floor tiles mark because um, in our clinic we have an interest in floor. Um, I think the um, the person who originally built the the, um, the little shop front that we lease um, didn't exactly abide by the building codes, Mark. Um, so it's got a bit of a wave, you know, our floor, depending on which area you stand in, you might be um, a couple of centimetres taller or shorter. Um, so you've got to be careful where you stand. So as a result, the floor tiles, which are the um, you know concrete or, or um, um, solid floor tiles, they tend to every now and again explode um, and, and literally with this huge cracking sound. <laughs> and that occurred on Thursday, I think, during the week. I'm scared to... Scared the bejesus out of us all, and um, then I spent um, Friday um, chipping away at some of these tiles, and then laying some new tiles down. And as a result, we have an interesting patchwork quilt of a floor in our clinic because the original tiles were probably laid down thirty at least years ago, and obviously they can no longer be 
um, acquired. So over the years, we've um, tried to match the tiles um, and the particular size of the tiles is the difficulty. They just don't, it's not a standard size anymore, Mark. So so we've got lots of different colour patterns in sort of these chequered colour patterns. Fortunately, the area that I tiled, Mark, was in the in the back sort of treatment room area, so um, it didn't really affect what's happening in the reception where the clients I tend. am so, so amazed, Brendan. You are such a, you know, um, man of um, all skills. You, you're such a handyman, <laughs> such a scholar. Um, I, th- I know I th- you wouldn't let me anywhere near a grout and tiles, <laughs> whether at home or work or away from the, the uh, public areas or in, in the uh the the uh the wards I'd be yeah no, there's no um no opportunity for me to play with the um the uh, grout and measuring stick and um and uh, spaces I was always amazed by those when I'm, I always used to um imagine people measuring out those um tiles like you know precisely to put them in place but then I learned that you actually have little plastic spaces yes and I I did use the spaces there you go although it's such a shoddy sort of floor there that even with the use of the spaces it's all a bit a bit higgledy higgledy mark um but it's not dissimilar to repairing a turtle shell and <laughs> some of the treatments we use in our reptiles mark so i'm sure you would be you would be well versed and 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 quite adequate with laying floor tires i don't think it's um i don't think it's a super highly skilled job and um We'll probably know that in the next few months, um, depending on whether those tires to stay stuck it down or not. And um, we might have an OHS problem in my clinic. Um, we never know. Yeah. So enough about tiles. Um, I think we should answer. We had a, an interesting little email from our serial emailer, and that is Nick. Um, and he sent us a couple of you. He always he comes some... up with great questions. We love Nick's emails, and and um, and they are. Um, they're insightful, and they um, uh, they often um, lead us in space into places that um, that in, enhance our understanding. Brendan, I love Nick's emails. He likes to push the boundaries, old Nick. And he, it was a two part email, but this week we will just cover one of them due to due to time limitations. Mark, we may cover it next week or the week after, and I will read it out, and you can offer your opinion up, and, and we'll have a little little chat about um, this particular medication and Nick asks us uh, do you ever see meripotent in rabbits or ever use meripotent in rabbits it's been theorized to me by some local rabbit vets that just because rabbits can't vomit doesn't mean they can't feel nauseous I suppose I could see how that makes some logical sense on occasion, I've used injectable meripotent in GI stasis rabbits. I'm not sure I've definitely seen a beneficial effect, but I was curious about your experience slash thoughts on this. Mark, what's your thoughts? Well, you know me, Brendan. I'm perfectly happy to um, stick my neck out there where I have absolutely no experience whatsoever and, and pass judgment and make comment. Um, I I... When you and I were um, discussing this uh, offline before we'd um, begun today, I, I was saying to you that we hadn't used it, but we probably we'd thought about using it a couple of times. But um, but I just don't think. While I accept that uh, the gut stasis rabbits probably feel nauseous, I really think that um, that it's probably much more to do with um, 
pain and uh, motility. They're like I think the nausea arises from those things. So um, in my uh, hospital at the moment, um, we really do tend to focus on those. And I I am pretty pleased to say that when we do, we usually have a fairly prompt response. And I don't know that um, that, that response would be increased or uh, whether the rate of um, return to normal would be increased by the use of maropatin. Um it, uh, uh, I don't. I don't see it as primarily a, um, a nauseating disease. What's your thoughts, Brendan? I think the difficulty is, yeah. How do how do we measure the possibility that rabbits um, have nausea? And and all we can really do is what you exactly just said there, Mark. We try and extrapolate back to what type of process or disease is happening in the rabbit, whether it's the ileus or or some other disease which we may think does have nausea. And I think the other, although this question was specifically about um, gut stasis in rabbits, anecdotally I think people also use it as a potential anti-nausea drug in rabbits with head tilt marks. So we may um, need to comment on that as well. And and I think I'm, I'm the same with you in that I, I, I don't immediately consider or think that they are particularly na- particularly nauseous, these, these rabbits, um, with the gut stasis, if we stick with the gut stasis. So, um, But we did find a nice little article in the um, a therapeutic review of it in Exotics by Kim Lee, DVM, um, in the Journal of Exotic Pet Medicine, 2017. And I think it has a really good summary, doesn't it, Mark, about the, the mode of action of, of this particular medication and, and potentially whether or not it will work with um, with these conditions in rabbits. So do you want to just walk through a little bit of that, Mark, and then I'll, I'll jump in um, as you're heading. Well, I think the um, key thing that um, uh, that is um, the key difficulty with myropatin, it's a, um, a neurokinin-1 antagonist. It blocks the neurokinin-1 receptors. And I suppose the key thing is that we don't completely understand how those receptors um, work in rabbits. Um, in dogs and cats, we do get clear anti-emetic and anti-nausea effects, and that's why it's um, it's uh, used as a you know a motion sickness or uh, anti-nausea in dogs that are vomiting. Um, we don't have a lot of evidence to suggest that. Um, well, we don't have any evidence to show that it has the same effects in uh, rabbits and rodents. It, they, its effects there are just unknown. Um, the, the, I suppose the other thing um, is that uh, some people would argue that uh, that it might uh, contribute to, um, uh, you know, the multimodal analgesia. Um, uh, the uh, neurokinin one receptors do modulate some of the pain pathways centrally, uh, but once again, evidence that um, it plays a significant role is in dogs cats or rabbits or any exotic mammal for that matter is um is um you know just not there brendan yes and for for those of you who forget or or or, or um don't know we're to, the the trade name for this drug is serenia um and i'm sure most people who see dogs and cats would certainly be using this um fairly frequently or commonly um for for an, um an agent for use in in dogs in particular right spect um yeah so the difficulty is i don't think there's any and this article sort of summarizes that there's no 
no studies um, or animal model, models showing that it does have a, um, a um, effect in, in exotic companion man- mammals at all or, or birds. Um, it certainly does have a clinical anti-emetic effect and anti-nausea effect in dogs and cats, uh, and, and it's just lacking the information with them. Um, one of the concerns, I think, um, that potential we have, and, 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 and it's probably why I don't consider it as well, is it has no anti-inflammatory effect in, in the mouse model of post-operative ileus, and it had an adverse clinical effect mark by decreasing intestinal motility in the mouse model. So I'd just be potentially worried if, if potentially that extrapolates to rabbits that we, we may be making things a little bit worse if we were using it in, in rabbits with the GI stasis. I mean, my, what are your, um, my standard treatment? And we have gone through this with a previous podcast, Mark, but my, standard sort of um, supportive care for a rabbit in, in GI stasis is is the usual three or four things. It, it's rehydrating them, so it's fluid therapy. It is analgesia um, with them, and often it's that multimodal um, analgesics like you mentioned, Mark, and that would be, um, for instance, meloxicam in, in combination with an opiate, um, and it would be using also, for majority of them, it would be using um, our um, prokinetic type drugs so that's using our ranitidine is the one i always reach for um and i think there's one or two others that sometimes used as well mark isn't there i think you mentioned another one previously and what was that well we often find that um our theory that uh, several of the postmortems we've done on rabbits that have not uh, pulled through um, have revealed um fairly significant particular ulceration in the stomach and so we're pretty keen to you know start them on something like sacralfate um, that might uh, provide some physical barrier to um, the problems going on in their stomach so we'll often um, uh, administer that the other one that uh, I used to use quite a lot but um, I I, um, have and this is one of the things I've got to pat you on the back from a distance Brendan I think um there's a lot of uh, extrapolation that's based on, and metoclopramide is probably the one I'm thinking of at the moment where um, it definitely has an anti-nauseate effect. But um, in my experience, um, there's no significant evidence that it helps in our rabbit cases. Um, and so we've dropped it from our protocol as well. And I think um, looking a little bit further than just uh, it seems to work in dogs and cats, should we use it in other species and try to find those articles where people have done reviews and uh, and get, and looked at the pharmacokinetics. Um, I think that's a, a good next step for us to take. And I know you always do that often. I'm talking to you and um, I'm trying to find out what information you've had to guide your clinical choices. So I appreciate um, the option, the opportunity to bring this topic up now and talk about neuropotent. And I think that follows on with with a lot of medications that people who are, are not treating or, or seeing unusual pets commonly will will consider that hey maybe I should use Serenia or maybe I should use a long acting antibiotic in this particular unusual pet and yet there's no or evidence or the evidence is is completely opposite of what they're what they're thinking about that that long acting antibiotic for instance does not last uh, long term in, in in the species that they have in front of them so you have to be 
very careful about selecting your medications when when dealing with something that you don't have experience with or, or, or you know the, the pharmacodynamics of that particular agent. So the, the bottom line is, Mark, isn't it? It's what I do every day. Well, um, every day in my working life, um, hit the books or hit the um, hit the veterinary resources, the the um, uh, the pharmaco um, pharmacopoeia, and and um, get the information there before you just make a guesstimate. Don't guess. Um, look it up. Phone a friend. I usually phone up Mark um, Simpson and ask him, <laughs> and then you will tell me what dose to use and what and that um, why are you using that drug. You will say to me. Um, and I'll say, oh, um, well, good point, Mark. Maybe I shouldn't use that in in that particular species. So there you go, Nick. That's our answer. Well, I think our answers are pretty resounding. No, we don't use it, and and we don't think it has much effect, um, eripotent in in gut stasis in rabbits. And we'll answer your second part or your second question, um, Nick, next week or in the following weeks um, when we get a chance to come back around to it, Mark. So. Yeah, I think we should jump into some news stories, Mark, because we have a really varied um, list of news topics this week, Mark, and I think you should grab the first one. Which one are you going to talk about first, Mark? Well, I think um, uh, Pacific Chocolate is where I'm going first, Brendan. Pacific Chocolate. Of course you are. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Pacific Chocolate is the name of a famous um, koala who passed away in 2012 um, at, uh, on the, the uh, mid-north coast of New South Wales at Port Macquarie. Um, she was um, particularly um, pertinent to our discussions later in the podcast. Um, she was ravaged by um, chlamydia and, uh, and it uh, led to um, uh, quality of life being questioned and she was humanely euthanized. Um, her tissue was harvested for a study. Um, there were two other koalas from southeast Queensland who also contributed later, um, and their um, the tissues from those um, those uh, three koalas contributed to um, the the analysis and uh, diagnosis, the exposition of the koala genome, um, a relatively um, significant scientific event. Um, now, I've always struggled with these um, genome discoveries, Brendan. I think um, I've always had a little bit of a, yep, now you know each of the genes in sequence for that species. What does that mean? Um, does yes. it actually help with anything? Um, but in this case, um, already that... Uh, that um, uh, scientific work has allowed um, the development through understanding the gene processes. Um, it has allowed the development of uh, a vaccine for chlamydia, the cause of death for all three of those koalas. But it's also um, given us lots of information about the genes that the koalas use that allow them to um, eat eucalypts, as, uh, well, maybe not many people do know, but um, eucalyptus leaves are fairly loaded with some. Um, uh, toxic chemicals. They really uh, are a little bit of a specialist thing for any animal to eat because they've got to break down a whole bunch of toxins. And um, identifying the genes that code for these uh, detoxifying uh, processes um, really has made a, um, a big difference to understanding how koalas can survive. Even more importantly, there's a whole um, school of uh, work being done on a variety of marsupials 
um, that looks at um, at their milk um, because so many marsupials, koalas included, um, their joeys are born with what could only be described as fairly bloody pathetic immune systems. Um, they're understanding how these um, little jelly beans um, are able to cope um, with the complex world inside the pouch. Um, that's been a, uh, you know, and the, the particularly how um, the things in their mother's milk would help them to do that. Um, once again, the, the uh, genome has helped significantly uh, in understanding those things. So particularly this is a great story from my point of view because it, um, it, uh, uh, um, it, it uh, puts a like a real world um, uh, highlight, the real world consequence on um, on these uh, um, uh, genome stories for me, and particularly we love our koalas, so it's a good one, Brendan. Yes, and we also get some int- interesting statistics there, Mark. Um, you mentioned that um, sometimes you don't know why people keep um, cracking these codes. Um, well, f- this one, for instance, tells us that um, koala genome is slightly slightly larger than the human genome, Mark, with 26,558 genes. I feel like so a loser, Brendan. I think you could at least build, beat the koala when it comes to genomes. <laughs> Well, I, th- I think um, you're a lot more like a koala than I um, ever, ever thought, Mark, because I think those detoxification genes, I've seen you um, drink, Mark, and I think you might have one or two of those in your system. The way you can down those drinks, um, I reckon you're, 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 part, you're part Pacific chocolate, Mark. Um, and my other question for this story is where did Pacific chocolate get his or her name from? I expect it's a... Um, a sponsorship deal with a chocolate company or something that sponsored that particular um, koala, unless um, they're being maybe a little bit racist and calling this koala Pacific chocolate um, because um, he or she was a little bit darker than other koalas. I don't know. Um, But that's what um, struck me with this. You know, I tend to go off on a bit of a tangent with them and I did a little bit of a search, Mark. I did a search for Pacific chocolate and I, I just, it just made me want to eat some chocolate. I found lots of pictures of chocolate, but I didn't find any company that was mentioned Pacific Chocolate. I thought that's what it would be. But um, anyway, that's um, that's where I ended up. But yes, um, it's um, yeah, there's some smart people out there, aren't there, Mark? Um, doing things like cracking these codes and um, a very um, a very interesting story there. My story is not quite as um, exciting as your one, Mark, um, but it is about uh, megafauna, and I know you do like megafauna, Mark. And it's a little story about one of the largest bears ever to walk Europe was a vegetarian. Um, and it is is not unsurprising that this particular cave bear, um, which is one of the largest bears ever to roam Europe, um, were vegetarian. Um, and we certainly know that some bear, well, bears that aren't extinct or, or from um, like the panda, for instance, that we know are, um, are not meat eaters, but um, they, they've long suspected, the researchers, that cave bears were at least predominantly vegetarian due to their dentition, um, but their teeth are much better suited for grinding rather than slashing. Um, I, lo- I like to um, um, challenge some of my students when we're talking about um, exotic pets and I I put up pictures of different 
completely different species and, and, and try and get them to um, get back to basics with things, Mark. And, for instance, I'll put up a picture of a of a of um, one of the land tortoises and um, point to one of the students and say, okay, is this um, land tortoise a, a vegetarian or an omnivore or a carnivore? And, um, um, you know, um, the answer is pretty... Pretty straightforward because most of those land um, tortoises aren't very fast runners, are they? Are they, Mark? So they um, they're going to catch pretty slow moving vegetable matter. So they they're basically vegetarians, and and it's quite interesting to see the the mechanisms of the students' um, brains sort of try and um, work under pressure, Mark. Um, when I when I sort of hit them with these silly sort of questions with it, and this is what reminded me with this this. Um, this bear and it was a pretty big animal, wasn't it, Mark? Have you seen the picture of this um, this massive bear? Um, a was... ton, Brendan. They weighed more than a ton. They're just slightly bigger. The biggest ones were slightly bigger than, you know, the Kodiak bears, the largest um, living bear. They were just slightly bigger than that. So, very, very Pre- big animals. And and they do make a very good point at the end of the article, saying that you wouldn't want to have wandered into a cave where one of these bears were nesting despite the fact they're vegetarian and and I think I um, I totally agree um, with that comment because when you do look at that skull even though they're basically designed to to chew that vegetable matter they got some pretty damn big teeth there Mark so there you go that's my first story about one of the largest bears to ever walk the earth was a vegetarian what's your next story Mark? Well my next one is one it's a serious one, I hope. Unfortunately, I'm letting you down, Brendan. I'll let you down gently, though. Um, the, my next one is a story from the, you know, our, one of our favourites, the Mother Nature Network. Um, it's a well, it's a little bit distressing, I think. I don't know what to think about this. It the the, the um, lead is: Does your chicken need a diaper? Now, no is probably the simple answer, but. Apparently, um, there are companies at the moment uh, who are, um, uh, they're really uh, selling large numbers of these. Now, in the article here, there was a, um, uh, there's a company, Crazy K's Farm, with the hen holster bird diaper harness. Um, start, of course, starts at twenty nine ninety nine, um, and uh, the owner of Crazy K Farm, uh, Mrs. Kasenki, has sold about five thousand of them since she started making them in two thousand and eleven. Um, so, look, I, I and I, you and I, Brendan, both know that um, backyard chickens are one of those uh, very. Um, they they stimulate in people a, a um, you know a passion. People uh, become very connected to their chickens. They um, they uh, they they love spending time with them. They love watching them. They love to make sure they stay healthy. Um, it's only a small jump, I suppose, uh, for some of those people to want to have them come inside, um, and and of course. Uh, they're very difficult to toilet train, in my experience, um, and so, of course, you you I can see in an extreme circumstance why some people might elect to um, arrange some form of uh, pouch strap on pouch to catch the droppings. Um, but I don't know, Brendan. I 
I think there's certain things in life where, um, well, first of all, I, we we do we there are a number of birds that we do put um, I don't know uh, harnesses on. Um, there's uh, quite a few of our um, macaw owners will try to um, train their birds to fly with a harness so that they could maybe ride alongside them on a bike, that sort of thing. Um, and my experience is that some birds can be desensitised to these um, straps around their body, but um, there, there seems to be a considerable portion, maybe a third to a half of the birds, who just will never have them. So I do wonder whether some of these chickens are, um, uh, you know, maybe they won't take them. Um, there certainly seems to be lots of photos on Instagram of chickens with diapers, and geez, I don't know whether that's the sign of the end of the, you know, civilization as we know it. It's a bit disturbing, isn't it, Mark? It is a bit disturbing that story. Yes, and I I wandered over to Crazy K Farm while you were talking there, Mark. And um, not only do they have the product you mentioned, but they also have the hen saver the leader in chicken saddles. They have the hen holster, the original harness diaper, which is the one we were just talking about. And they also have the birdie bra, Mark, the crop supporter and chest protector for birds. And I won't talk about the most disturbing product they had, the birdie booty. Um, We'll leave that one well alone, Mark, um, and we'll head on to the next story. And the next story is, well, it's probably our only half-serious story. Well, actually, it is full-serious story, full this serious. one. It's full-on serious story. And this is about a comment. This was sent to us by our, our, our good friend and supporter, Doug Black, I think, um, sent this article to us, Mark. And this is a comment about the Indian dairy industry and the challenges that are faced there and yeah i was quite gobsmacked mark about um some of the some of the um information from this article there and uh, i'll just pick out a few of these um comments here um or or notes during from the article there mark india is the largest milk producer in the world producing 167 million tons per year which is a fifth of the world production market 50 percent are from cows and 50 percent from from buffaloes and quite amazingly most come from 70 million small-scale farms where less than five cows or buffaloes are are owned mark which um they on average they average five liters production per cow per day t i remember the days when 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 you and i went out to do our our prac work our practical work as students mark um, and and i was amazed when we had some of these new rotary sort of um uh, milking milking farms um for the cows um and they'd have 50 or 100 cows there because i think even in those days you'd you'd probably only milk 20 or 30 um and and then we're getting up to you know 100 200 cows that were, were in these mega farms at the time 40 um, percent of the indian um, dairy industry um, milk is produced is consumed by farming families mark 35 percent sold unprocessed locally and 25 percent collected and processed for other other products like butter and ghee um so they've got lots of um difficulty there and i, I think part of it is it's trying to support all these 
I suppose I'll call, I'd call them micro businesses, but I, um, the other name would be smallholder farmers, wouldn't they, Mark? Um, and the difficulty they have with the access to, you know, veterinary services, there, animal health services, um, the the potential worries with genetics, um, with the, with the low numbers in each of the herds, um, the large number of these farmers, and the lack of the the knowledge um, to to improve their farming practices, and and apparently the milk quality is often often really low and when you factor in the the issue that the cow is sacred um, in a, in um, India so the difficulty of what they do with the old and the sick and the cows that aren't producing it it, um, it makes things quite difficult because they obviously may not be wanting or refusing to to potentially euthanize an animal where there may be a quality of life issue with them so so they've got a lot of a lot of difficulties there. So I wonder if what's happened in a lot of the sort more developed or, or non sort of second or third world countries is going to happen in India, Mark, where they will end up they'll end up with the sort of mega, the big farms, the big dairy farms, and and then what will that cause for all these um, all these millions of um, Small-scale farmers, Mark, more than 70 million small-scale farmers um, in India. So, yeah, so um, it's a, yeah, it's lots, a bit of, of, lots of questions. Yeah, yeah. Lots of questions. It's a, um, I've got to thank Doug for these sort of um, uh, articles. Open your eyes, don't they, Brendan? And um, while we try to be woke, while we try to be alert to the ways of the world, um, it is things like this that, um, that you know, you, you – don't necessarily have uppermost in your mind and and that does raise a whole series of questions about disease about um, how those diseases might be managed how the government can assist with initiatives um, without um, creating trouble for that those 70 million farmers and um, and in as is usual in uh, in third world countries the, the uh, women were the main drivers of farm oversight and uh, and um, and they they actually sought um, uh, help. Well, they were very keen to learn and improve their sustainability. Um, and as you said, uh, micro businesses, um, women as main drivers. There, there. It's, it will be interesting to see what changes occur um, over the next um, couple of decades. Uh, as um, you know, maybe industrial farming uh, reaches those people and what will be the consequences brendan yes and i think the positive is that in this article at least it does mention that the indian government has lots of initiatives to try and help the dairy industry including these small farmers um in in improving the um the quality of the milk and and the the, the care of the the livestock and also um, milk collection centres and refrigeration and those sorts of things. And I think, Mark, I mean, the reason why it sort of piqued my interest, this one is, that, as you know, I'm heading over to India for a couple of weeks um, in December and um, I might try and see if I can um, find a couple of these little small-scale farms and, and have a bit of a poke around and, and go from there. Although I must say one of the things that's mentioned is that don't drink the milk. <laughs> <laughs> Um, when you go to India, so um, you know me, I'm a bit of a bit of a rebel. So I'll probably come back with um, Delhi Belly. Um, so yeah, we'll see what happens. So um, we will let our listeners know, Mark. We'll let our listeners know what happens to me if I'm out of hospital um, by that time. So 
I'm going to quiz you again, Mark, for the main topic this week. The main topic is chlamydiosis in birds. So we are going to do our usual and walk through the um, process of the diagnosis and the clinical signs and the, and the treatment of this um, condition. And you, you're going to answer all the questions because you know all the answers, Mark. Well, I don't know that I know all of them, but um, I, can, I can give it a crack, Brendan. I'll have a crack. Good, I'm sure you will. So the first question is how how common is it? How many how, what's what what species of birds do you tend to see it in most commonly and do you see much of it or hardly or any? We see it very commonly. It it is probably um uh the most common disease that uh that we see in in our particularly in our parrots, but also in uh, pigeons and uh, to a lesser extent in the poultry that we get to see. Um, It is, uh, you know, I would say that um, that, uh, not, certainly not a week goes past without us having a bird that's that's got um, uh, avian chlamydiosis. Um, and, And there are some weeks where we would have, you know, at least every day we'd have a bird that has that disease. So um, it is an interesting thing when we're, when I was doing um, some, some, you know, massive, massive prep for tonight's um, uh, podcast that um, I look back across our rate of diagnosis and, um, and it has really dropped off a little bit over the last 12 months. Um, and I don't know that I have an easy explanation for that. Um, we do go through cycles where we see... <laughs> A little bit less, um, but um, but uh, yeah, I I I I um, I've been wondering whether um, with the additional information that many primary accession vets have, that um, maybe we're not getting as many referred cases. Um, I don't know, Brendan, but um, but still, despite that drop off, it would be one of the most common things we see. The species we see it in most commonly um, are the. Probably the desert, the um, desert parrots, particularly um, the little Neophema group. Um, we regularly see it in those guys, and it's often a comorbidity with one of the viral diseases, maybe PBFD. We regularly see it almost uh, uh, very, very well. Probably our most common patient would be the cockatiel. Um, cockatiels are very resistant to the viral diseases, and they're also great carriers for chlamydia. They're often not um, uh, the birds who crash and burn, but they just sort of linger and happy to spread the disease around an aviary. So we regularly see cockatiels with the problem. Um, yes. And princess parrots are probably our third most frequent patient. Um, princess parrots seem to have a particular weakness. Um, my theory is that um, some of those desert birds are come across the pathogen so infrequently that they have very little resistance and so get very sick. Um, and uh, and I particularly think that's what happens to our princess parrots, Brendan. So going back one step, you mentioned that it is a common condition in our little avian patients. How well known is it by the clients? Well, I think it's... it's um. I would I would divide our clients into two groups to answer this question. Our first group would be our aviculturists, and I think that I can safely say that they're they're 
at least vaguely aware of the possibility of this disease and they might not completely understand the risks. They certainly give me a lot of trouble with uh, um, quarantine periods. Um, but, um, but I think the aviculturists have a little bit of a grasp. Um, uh, the pet bird owners, on the other hand, um, they seem to often have um, no knowledge. They often are completely shocked um, when they're told that um, there's a zoonosis that uh, their cockatiel could be carrying. And, and I often am in the situation in the consult room where some lovely owner is um, virtually, well, giving their cockatiel a lovely kiss on the beak. Um, and I do take the time at those times to just point out that it might not be a good habit. Um, and, uh, and they are pretty shocked to think that um, their beautiful bird could be the source of a disease that uh, not only makes the bird sick, but could make them sick as well. Yes, and with the limited number of birds that I see these days, I usually palm them off to the other vets in, in my clinic. We, we certainly have, or I certainly experience clients that have unfortunately acquired psittacosis, um, so the, the human version of, of the chlamydia um, disease, chlamydia pseudocyte disease, and, and yeah, it's a pretty nasty thing to do. So what's your recommendation, Mark, for the for, for people who are thinking of purchasing a bird, um, especially if they have, say, young children or elderly um, elderly people in their house, do you straight out say, no, you shouldn't um, acquire a parrot at all? No, of course I don't, Brendan. And um, and interestingly enough, chlamydia is, um, you highlighted the uh, young people, the elderly people sort of spectrum of uh, immunosuppressed individuals in our population. Um, while those groups are particularly susceptible to diseases like salmonellosis, chlamydia seems to be a disease that um, that is um, certainly much less, you know, it, it um, in fact, the most common people that uh, pick it up are young adults, um, people in their 20s or 30s. Um, they're the people uh, often with excellent immune systems um, and they'll, they will be the real um, um, likely victims. My tactic with people who have um, newly acquired birds is awareness. I, I tell them the story that um, there was an American, an elderly American who kept birds who he um, got sick, he got a cold and he went to his doctor and in America they don't call it paracetamol, they call it acetaminophen and uh, that's what he was prescribed, Brendan, in the first instance. They just said, you know, you've got a cold, um, take some of this and have a rest and uh, three weeks later he went back and said, look, this just isn't stopping so they gave him some antibiotics but as you well know, the antibiotics that uh, are effective in humans against chlamydia are not the frontline antibiotics that most uh, medicos would routinely try first up in a case of someone who might have the early stages of a bacterial pneumonia. So he went for another three or four weeks and uh, wasn't getting any better. In fact, starting to get a little bit worse. He was quite elderly. I think he was 87. Um, and uh, he ended up with atypical pneumonia, was admitted to hospital, and it was only well, three months after the initial hospital visit that they figured out that he had chlamydiosis. And unfortunately, he passed away. And the moral of that story, Brendan, is um, to be aware. It's when you have birds 
it's uh, to be in a situation where you go to your doctor and you have an unrelenting cold, it's important to say to them, I have birds and I'm worried about chlamydia. Um, doctors, once that sentence is uttered, are really, really good at figuring out whether you've got it or not. Um, and they're really, really good if they find out you've got it at prescribing the right antibiotics for humans. And it's really treatable in humans. So um, so I think uh, awareness is my catch cry when it comes to chlamydia. Yes. And and um, it reminds me of the story um, from Mike. Mike Cannon always tells about um, if you do go to your to to the GP or, or mention to your client to go to the GP about potential um, human infection with this organism, and you mention chlamydia to your GP, and he then um, straps you um, down and, and puts a little swab up um, up in your genital region, then he's talking about the wrong chlamydia, um, and you should go to another GP. Um, I love that story that Mike talks about. I love that. Yes, all Mike's stories. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so um, we need to be aware certainly of, of um, the possibility that we may have something that's zoonotic there, Mark. So um, what's the, let's let's cut to the chase with this particular condition. So we, you've mentioned some of the um, common species of birds that you see in your practice, um, or, or I suppose worldwide as well, that that um, have this disease. Um, what are the signs, Brendan? They're mainly respiratory signs. The Organism definitely um, causes a lot of problem with the air sacs, the lungs, the upper respiratory tract, and most of the birds we uh, diagnose with the problem are presented for respiratory signs. They do also, um, they definitely show, um, they very regularly show diarrhoea as well, the stress of the disease and the changes within their um, their body, uh, they often have a splenitis that's not obvious on the outside, but um, it can lead to damage to blood vessels and they'll often end up with this, um, you know, bright green, almost iridescent uh, diarrhoea as well. But the primary signs we see, and obviously they're, um, they're lethargic, um, they um, often, uh, not so much cough, but um, they'll often wheeze and um, have a... Uh, um, serous or mucoid discharge from the nostrils they often have a significant conjunctivitis um, the uh, the red the the conjunctiva around the eyes particularly of cockatiels that have this disease may well be um, hugely inflamed and uh, might be the presenting reason the birds um regularly uh, you know present as those sick we have a, a sick bird look um, as one of our presenting um, signs presenting reasons and um, and very often out we are alerted to chlamydia by just the lethargic depressed fluffed up bird and is that chronic mark or or do you get acute cases as well where the bird has been apparently well the day before and then it's um, brought to you very sick it's an interesting question brendan because it's a little bit species specific as we mentioned before the cockatiels and uh um and uh, budgerigars for example they're birds that um, will often have chronic disease and get run down over some time and eventually develop respiratory signs but other birds like um our princess parrots, Eclectus, are really one of the ones that I worry a lot about uh, in the rainforests of uh, tropical Queensland and uh, the islands to the north, New Guinea and uh, Solomon Islands. They obviously don't come into contact with this organism at all because um, it's 
not unheard of to um, to have a bird, uh, an Eclectus parrot, um, that comes down with this uh, that's fine one day, very, very sick the next day um, and can pass away within hours. We've had a couple of birds like that, sudden death. We've done the complete post-mortem and identified acute chlamydiosis as the cause of death. Yes. So how do you diagnose it? Oh, before death, <laughs> well, it's, it's and that's a, that's a good question. That's a loaded question. It's a loaded now. question. It's a very loaded question. And for this, the answer to this, I would first of all um, uh, refer our. I'll send you the link, Brendan. It's the um, the uh, um, CDC's uh, handbook on chlamydiosis. Um, it's sort of like the for particularly for doctors in. The US, it's sort of the um, the compendium on um, chlamydiosis is the um, you know the resource, the go to resource, and as a consequence, it uh, sets the standard for a number of other clinical circumstances. And um, and there are a bunch of tests uh, that uh, that can be used. There's a certain a whole bunch of tests that we can use. The problem with chlamydiosis is that none of them are absolutely perfect. And so sometimes um, we will be um, using two or three tests in sequence um, to, uh, you know, to um, particularly in cases, the ones that are most worrying, of course, are um, those ones where people come to us, they've gotten sick, they've been diagnosed themselves, um, and their doctor said, you must get rid of your bird. And they come to us, you know, trying to figure out whether their bird is the actual cause. And so those cases we do sort of take to the nth degree. We um, will run a DNA to identify if there's any chlamydial antigen in the birds. But obviously they're in association with a person that's been diagnosed. And so um, is the finding of DNA from the samples from the birds significant? Is the bird the source of the disease? We also use um, the immunocomb test. This is a um, it's a bit of a frustrating one for us, uh, for us people trying to diagnose uh, chlamydia in birds because it's a bit of an unvalidated test. Um, it's a commercial test, a commercial uh, antibody test, um, and um, and clinically, I would have to say that uh, it corresponds. The you know the uh, findings we get with our immunocomb tests correlate well with the other findings we get um, and they add to the data. I just am a bit unhappy that, you know, I like using validated, externally validated tests, particularly in those circumstances where we're making decisions about um, where the bird, whether the bird is a source of disease or not. But we definitely use the immunocomb test. Um, we used to use an ELISA, the, um, uh, what, the Clearview test, um, but um, yes. it's a... Uh, uh, um, you know, dropped off the market. Uh, the company manufacturing it um, isn't supporting the test kit, the heating stuff and whatever that goes with it. So we don't use that one anymore. Um, so, yeah, Brendan, it's often a post, like I said, for some of the birds, it's a, uh, a post-mortem diagnosis, particularly those birds that, um, that pass away quickly and might be uh, likely to infect other birds in the aviary. So, so yeah. So you diagnose a case of it in an alive bird or a suspected case of it that tests positive on, on one of these tests that you may not have 100% um, confidence that it's given you a, a, um, 
a definite positive. What's what's what treatment options do you recommend? Well, the treatment um, is almost always uh, doxycycline, and um, there are a number of forms of doxycycline that we can use. Um, we definitely have taken advantage in some birds of the uh, um, of the um, you know the commercial ta- cat paste that's used for cats, so Vibrovet paste. Um, uh, there are a number of in-water preparations. Uh, um, the, our good friends at Vetafarm make a number of in-water medications. It's always a little bit of a – the in-water medication story is always a little bit of a battle, Brendan, because, geez, an animal's got to drink the stuff before it uh, – before it becomes, um, you know, a treatment. And I've already highlighted that a lot of the birds that have this problem are desert birds, very, very used to um, going, you know, quite light on water for a few days. And they're also very neophobic about uh, stuff that might be stuck in the water. They're a good habit to have if you live in the desert because it may well be that um, what little pools of water are left are concentrated with toxins. And so... It's a good survival technique, but it may mean that it's very difficult to get the medication into them. We do compound doxycycline up with our local compounding pharmacist, mixes it up for us in some fruity, fruity flavours, and uh, sometimes that makes it a bit easier to get into birds. Um, and at- so, so what would sorry, yeah, but- Matt, what would the most common um method you would uh, uh for compliance that you would um, dispense the doxycycline as to the we're birds. probably using the powder um the uh Cetivet powder from vetafarm would be the most common uh, uh product we'd use um and it's just a matter of monitoring and making sure the birds get a dose yes and you were going for that um the the several the 45 days or whatever plus days um treatment as a routine we routinely go for 45 days um it's a little bit of an interesting like it's it's always seemed to me to be a little bit of an arbitrary number and there was some research which showed because the chlamydia organism um it's related to bacteria but it can survive as an elemental body which is pretty much a you know a, a, a in, in you know suspended animation, the organism goes into uh, cells, often the uh, macrophages, and uh, and just hangs out, un- offering no metabolic activity. And of course, um, most of the drugs that are designed to kill it require it to have some metabolism. And so, while it's in this phase of its life, um, it's uh, not going to die. And most of the um, organisms that are in that circumstance are going to come out over 45 days. That's the theory. Um, but it's not an absolute uh, guarantee. There are certainly um, uh, some birds who are going to go undergo a completely uh, good treatment, um, completely recover um, and be uh, cured of, um, of living uh, chlamydia, but still carry some inclusion bodies in there, elemental bodies in there, um, um, macrophages and the next time they get stressed brendan those birds can still come down with it so it's an important disease to monitor over time yes Do, have just by the way have you seen any any um toxicosis with the um with the doxycycline in birds any any um issues with um them showing clinical signs of the of adverse effects from it yes yes i have um, uh, the, in particular, not so much the in-water medication. Um, that 
really hasn't been a huge problem for us. And the problem with the in-water medication is those birds that won't drink it. Um, so that's not so much of a problem. But there is a um, uh, at times available an injectable form, a depot injectable form of uh, doxycycline, and uh, and that has been. Uh, that has led to some um, issues. There have been some birds that have had significant adverse reactions. It's a very painful injection, um, and uh, and uh, and so yeah, it's something that um, we're very keen not to employ unless we absolutely have to. Yes. Now, assuming you have one of these patients that unfortunately, which I'm sure is rare for you, dies after the treatment um, with your expert care, is there um, a simple, quick way to to cut to the chase to confirm that that particular bird did um, have chlamydiosis, Mark? Well, it's not a simple, quick way. <laughs> um, you certainly can um, take uh, tissue samples, a number of tissue samples, and um, uh, and obviously if you were to find chlamydial DNA in the spleen and liver um, then uh, on a post-mortem sample, then you'd be very much more um, suspicious that uh, that organism wasn't just uh, hanging around causing no problem. Um, but I think the uh, now you're really testing me. The gold standard um, is um, histopathology and identification of the... Um, and, and there's a particular stain that highlights the elemental bodies. Um, the spleen is the organism of choice to get these... Uh, um, uh, it might be some sort of gold stain. I'm just going from memory here and trying to flick through my pages, but um, uh, and that would be the um, the, uh, the for want of a better description, yes. the gold standard. <laughs> yes. No. What what I was sort of getting at is the I, I remember when I was. Back in the day when I was working as a zoo vet, the, the, the quick and dirty method initially to, to, to see if we had an infected bird was to examine that spleen, yeah, cut open the spleen and do a fresh prep, an impression um, smear of that sp spleen and um, stain it up and look for look for the chlamydia or um, bodies or whatever in there, Mark. Um, and I'm trying to remember what it was. Was it a Zeal Nielsen stain that was used or not? I cannot remember off yeah. the top of my head. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yes, so um, that's chlamydiosis, isn't it? In um, in birds, um, it's. I think it's always a bit of a challenging one, and I know every every couple of years or so, we we at our annual unusual pet conference, we tend to have a little lab class or a session, um, often run by um, Alex, um, our good friend Alex, um, who who walks everybody through the. Um, potential testing regimes that you can um, use for detecting chlamydia in birds and the pros and cons of each because it, it is not um, it is not just black and white and, and simple is it um, with them it's often you have to think a bit of this and a bit of that and um, um, put everything together to come up with the diagnosis of, of this bird probably has chlamydiosis um so I, I think sometimes it's not um not very um black and white is it mark it's not black and white i've got to relate to you the story of the biggest outbreak in new south wales of chlamydiosis which just highlights how not black and white it is in and around the riverina um i think this was about a decade ago it was dry like it is now 
Um, and there were just um, this whole um, uh, stream, stream of uh, uh, people who were coming down with um, serious respiratory signs. Some of them were hospitalised for several weeks, and um, and it took quite, you know, that the there was no. Lots of them didn't own birds. Lots of them. Uh, um, uh, um, had birds, but they were tested and were negative for chlamydia. Um, but um, there was a, you know, a big storm of cases all around the Riverina. And what had happened was that a particular flock of pigeons had been landing on the lawns and uh, contaminating the lawns with pigeon droppings rich in chlamydial organisms. And people were mowing the lawns, Brendan, and uh-huh. the dust from the, uh, you know, dry droppings um, was. Uh, was being aerosolized and breathed in and triggered off these uh, series of infections. So I always tell that story just to remind everyone that um, that uh, um, the bird in the hand is not always the source of the problem. And are you trying to tell me something? Because I did mow <laughs> the lawn this morning, Mark, So and my, um, my youngest daughter, Sophie, when we took the dogs for a walk, um, I was sneezing a little bit, so... Perhaps I should. Uh, I might not sleep very well tonight, Mark. I've just realised after after You'll your little fine, story. Brendan. You'll be fine. I know what you're like. You're like we said. You're the handyman. You will have all the personal protective <laughs> equipment to mow your lawn. You'll have the face mask on. The the uh, the doxycycline <laughs> is. Um, I'll be reaching for it um, immediately after we finish here, Mark. So yes, there we go. So chlamydiosis or psittacosis. Um, which is a disease in humans, and um, I think it's an important one because those of us who may not see birds very often in our clinical situation are almost certainly still going to see chlamydia cases, um, whether they realise it or not, Mark. And it is important that we that we provide our clients with information about zoonotic diseases and um, always have that that information on hand. And I and I will place a link to um, that summary or at least one of the summary articles about chlamydiosis in birds and psittacosis in humans. Um, it's a really good summary paper, Mark. I, I, I don't know whether that's the one that um, you were thinking of. It's the, it's the Compendium of Measures to Control Compl- Chlamydia Psittaci Infection Among Humans and Pet Birds. That was um, 2017, so fairly recent um, publication, including a lot of the the very well known avian veterinarians, including um, uh, Kevin Flammer. Um, who else did we have in there? We had, um, I'm sure that there was Richie in there, and all the all the all the big gurus there um, that were on the panel um, of that um, summary. Then it's a fantastic summary of um, the illness in humans and and. And birds, and also the approach to um, the diagnosis and the treatment of it. Very practical paper. It's a great little paper that was um, a Bio One um, publication, and it's freely available. So I'll link to that um, for those who want to see um, the link. And that's at vetgurus.com. And don't forget to um, make sure you um, spread the news about vetgurus and um, get get your friends and colleagues to subscribe and send in the emails including you nick we um we never tire of your um questions there so keep sending them in and um, we will um hear from you all next week or talk to you all next week and hopefully hear from you before them via email thanks for 
Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.